All right, if you would please this morning, stand with me one more time together today, and we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Instead of reading scripture, we're going to share together what is across the whole denominational spectrum, uh, a, a wonderful statement of faith. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Everybody say, I believe. So as you find one of the screens this morning, please, the title of this message is Crucified, Dead, and Buried. And I want you to pick up in this Apostles' Creed where you see that this morning, okay? So the Apostles' Creed, let's share it together. Let's read out loud. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, as you're standing this morning, I want to just be just a little bit of a reminder. That word Catholic is with a small lowercase c. Look it up in your dictionary. It means universal. It does not refer to the denomination unless it's capitalized behind the word Roman, Roman Catholic Church. This has been stated across the centuries now probably solidly since the second century in the New Testament church, long before the Roman Catholic Church was ever established, the word Catholic literally meant universal. So we're talking about the Christian church, the body of Christ. Bow your heads with me, please, for a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you as we come together in this service this morning and celebrate your presence. The song that we sung today, we ask you in prayer to lead us to to your cross. Lord, just fill our hearts with the awareness of the joy and the glory, Lord, that even was shrouded during the the suffering and the shame. All of that, you despise that suffering and shame. But Lord, for the joy that was set before you, you endured it. And we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the life-giving sacrifice that we are here today because you exchanged your life for ours. Jesus, you swallowed up death. We thank you for this cross that we celebrate now as Uh, an entrance, a doorway into the holiest of all, the very presence of God Himself. Thank you, Jesus, that you are that door, that living way. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us. I acknowledge before you, before this people, that I can't do anything apart from you. Move in this place, Holy Spirit, today and do only what you can do. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated this morning. I'm going to read the text today where we actually examine the crucifixion. Technically today is Palm Sunday, but we would have to go back a couple of chapters into our study in the Gospel of Mark. And after we took a little bit of a break from it in Christmas and our New Year's series, I I made sure that we planned this so that we could end up in Mark 16 on Resurrection Sunday, which is next Sunday. And we are encouraging you to invite friends to our Easter service. And so our text will be the opening of, of, of Mark chapter 16, where he is not here, he is risen. So right now I want to concentrate on about 18 verses of Scripture from Mark chapter 15, 
verses 21 through 39. You don't have to read out loud. Just follow along with me on the screen. There was a man walking by, coming from work, Simon from Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Stop right there. These are obviously not uh, Hebrew names. These are Romans who have been impacted by the gospel. Simon was right there at the site coming down the Via Dolorosa, the way of blood drops where Jesus was walking in preparation of the crucifixion. He is a big, super strong, strapping, muscled up guy. And we're going to explain in just a moment. His life ends up touching the two sons, Alexander and Rufus. They made Simon carry Jesus' cross. The soldiers brought Jesus to Golgotha, meaning Skull Hill. They offered him a mild painkiller, wine mixed with myrrh, but he wouldn't take it. And they nailed him to the cross. They divided up his clothes and threw dice to see who would get them. They nailed him up at nine o'clock in the morning. The charge against him, the king of the Jews, was printed on a poster. Along with him, they crucified two criminals, one to his right, the other to his left. People passing along the road jeered, shaking their heads in mock lament. You bragged that you could tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. So show us your stuff. Save yourself. If you're really God's son, come down from that cross. The high priests along with the religion scholars were right there mixing it up with the rest of them, having a great time poking fun at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Messiah is he? King of Israel, then let him climb down from that cross. We'll all become believers then. Even the men crucified alongside him joined in the mockery. At noon the sky became extremely dark. The darkness lasted three hours. At three o'clock Jesus groaned out of the depths crying loudly, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders Bystanders who heard him said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran off, soaked a sponge in sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus, with a loud cry, gave his final breath. At that moment, the temple curtain ripped right down the middle. When the Roman captain, standing guard in front of him, saw that he had quit breathing, he said, this has to be the Son of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And all of God's people said, amen. It's obvious as the narrative opens here this morning, we've got the Roman guards that find someone who is able to help Jesus get the crossbar. Uh, He's not dragging the whole T. It was common in the Roman Empire for the one, the criminal usually murderers and rebels and insurrectionists, those who had been found guilty of crimes legitimately sufficient to die such a cruel and horrendous, horrific death. Jesus is carrying the crossbar. It's more than likely tied to his hands by ropes, and it is heavier than he can bear because he has been up all night long. He's endured the mockery of soldiers bowing before him, pressing down into his the flesh of his skull, a plaited crown of thorns. Prior to that, he had been before Pilate, who had received him back from Herod, who 
had gotten him from Pilate and he had been examined. As we talked about last week, it was the, the choosing of the lamb. It was the examination and the declaration of that there is no fault in him. It was the direct connection to the fulfillment of the Passover lamb that had to be without spot or blemish. As found in the book of 1 Peter, back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb was chosen. He stood before Pilate. It was declared by the one who had the ability to bring about his sacrificial death, to declare that he would be crucified. And that man himself said, there's no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Prior to that, Jesus had spent hours in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas, jeering, mocking, false accusations. He'd been up all night long. He had, he had suffered the disappointment of the denial of one of his chief leaders, his co-leaders, Peter, the disciple. He'd been kissed with a betraying kiss by the man named Judas. He had been flogged. He had been beaten. It was a night that was sleepless. It was a night of anguish. It was a night of indescribable stress. It was blood. The Bible says before he actually even encountered all of this that he knelt in a place called Gethsemane and that the stress on him was so great that when he knelt down that he literally sweat drops of blood. It is a literal medical condition that when the tiniest capillaries in your body burst, literally, that, that if there is enough of the flow of blood that it will actually come through and flow out of the pores of your skin. Jesus sweat drops of blood. He was in anguish. All night long, he's been up, he's been beaten, he's been bruised. He's, the Bible says all of this in fulfillment. No, no one like Isaiah saw prior to in a prophetic understanding of the, the declaration of what God was going to do in his suffering servant. How amazingly unexpected this was because Jesus had come and he had begun to use this kind of language that was going to upside down and from the inside out de defeat the very power, military, by force, hunger of the Roman Empire. Jesus started talking back in Mark chapter 8 about taking up your cross daily and following him. Now, that's unusual because they're governed by an empire that has uh, expanded because of military force. They have expanded because the fist of power and might that has come down strong upon other peoples, other languages. It is, it, it, it is the height of imperial Rome. It is, it is colonization at its peak. It is take over a different people that have different cultural values and traditions and speak a different language and bring them into line by the, the, by the fist of fury. Crucifixion was something that took place on a regular basis throughout the whole Roman Empire. It was the most gruesome of deaths. And Jesus starts talking about making literally a political statement from the beginning saying, unless you, and he's pointing to all of this that's going on literally in the Roman Empire until you take up your cross. Now think about this. This, this is not something that would cause you to stop when you're flipping channels over the late night infomercials when someone starts talking to you about having to die. If anything, we want to protect our lives and cover our backs and we want to make sure that the future is bright. As the guy in the 90s said, my future's so bright, I have to wear shades. Jesus didn't have that kind of language in his gospel. It was all about dying to self and denying oneself and laying down one's life. And, and it was a completely 
counterintuitive, totally upside-down kingdom that he was preaching with the gospel. It was the kind of gospel that said you give in order to receive and you serve in order to reign and you, you die in order to live. It was a powerful gospel that gripped the hearts of people that touched them from every echelon of society. For some unusual reason, it seemed to resonate with those that were the most helpless and hopeless and the, the down and out and the downtrodden and the poor. That's something that has continued to exist throughout history in every generation. It seems that the poor, those that are the most desperate, respond first to the gospel. Because the rich don't think they need anything, don't think they need God. With our multiple car garages and all of the, the toys and the accoutrements of success and we're living on the eighth hole of the golf course. If anybody in here lives on a golf course, please don't. We're not, I'm just using this as kind of a metaphor or analogy. There's nothing wrong with being blessed or successful so long as we don't let those things blur the awareness of the fact that no matter how much you have, all of us as human beings are entirely, completely bankrupt before God. And it's this work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the cross. It's, it's this dying to my, 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 my bravado, all of this just big over-the-top impetuosity to think that I can do anything that would please God apart from Jesus Christ. Everything in my own strength and my own ability reeks and stinks of my flesh. So I have to die to those desires to, to live out of that. Matter of fact, I can't live in that. It's death. It breeds death. It reproduces death. It's until that dies that the real life of God, the Zoe life of God, can come alive in me. And when Simon the Cyrene takes the cross of Jesus, it's not Simon's cross, but this is such a powerful allusion back to. It would remind every disciple who had been in all of these meetings that Jesus had preached on the hill and from the boat side and after healing someone, when Jesus was emphasizing this continuous theme through his ministry, take up your cross daily and follow me. And if you're my disciples, you can't be unless you... Love this cross. Unless you kiss the cross and get a mouthful of splinters. Unless you understand what it means to stumble at the foot of. Because the Bible says the preaching of the cross is an offense. It's a scandal on. It's a stumbling block. It's something that trips you up and it does it for the purpose of bringing me to my knees to a place of desperation. There is an offense in it on purpose because it cracks my ability as a human being to think that I can earn anything of God's favor apart from His Unearned favor whatsoever. I'm preaching better than I'm getting a response here. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And he'd said it multiple times through the Gospels. Prophecy is fulfilled in every morbid element. Jesus has been beaten and bound and bruised, striped for our diseases. Chastisement of our peace is upon him. Isaiah the prophet had said it. He'd seen it more clearly than anybody whatsoever. Prophecy is fulfilled with every morbid element. He's walking down the Via Dolorosa. I remember in 2008 when I went to Israel and I walked that path and I thought about my Savior for my sin, dying for me and picking the, the, the T, the crossbar of that cross and carrying it and, and this gentleman stepping in in the moment of weakness with the human frailty of Jesus' body that had been without sleep, and he's knowing he's coming to the point after having been in the garden, and he said, Father, if it's possible at all, let this cup pass from me. 
But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was about to open his mouth and drink full the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. It was going to be poured out on him for the sins of many, the Bible says. All along the way, people are jeering and they're throwing rotten vegetables and they're screaming and hurling accusations. And what a different thing that's taking place on this Good Friday. Because on Palm Sunday, the day that we're actually here to celebrate today, they'd cut branches, thrush from the fields and palm, the, the palm branches from the trees. And they'd thrown their cloaks into the street. And Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, signifying that he was a king coming in peace. They had, they, had, they had shouted, Hosanna, which was a, uh, it was a declaration of praise, but it was also a prayer. It was a request. It was, it was asking, saying, save now, O son of David. Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And my, how quickly things change in just a period of five short days. From the Hosannas being heralded to the crucify hymns being jeered people grinding their teeth as he passes by, screaming insults. The whole process, the place, the people, it's just alive with the smell of Jerusalem, with lambs that are being slain and blood, that acrid smell that pierces, that just grabs your attention. You know what that smells like. You, you, you know the, the feel, you know the, you know the sound, the bleeding of sheep. There, there is the scent of sacrifice all over Jerusalem and faithful Faithful people are gathering. Pilgrims had traveled literally from all over the whole known world and they had come in there for the the season of Passover to celebrate the, the Lamb. And they were there to celebrate the history of what had taken place thousands of years prior when God had delivered the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh by the blood, by the water, by the Spirit. Not even realizing that they were born in such an amazing time that they were going to get to see the real, live, true Lamb of God walking down that blood drop spattered place called the Via Dolorosa. Jesus continues to make his way. This is what is so amazing that that, that he's actually going to take upon himself the very symbol of illegitimate power. And he's going to swallow up death by dying and taking death upon himself. He's going to pull down the reign of power in the Roman Empire by absorbing and experiencing the very fear-filled tactic that they've used in order to subjugate people groups all over the whole Mediterranean region. And that is the picture of the cross. He's going to die. And how his disciples didn't expect that. This Jesus was preaching a revolutionary gospel. They thought for sure. And their expectations were wrong. They thought that he would come along and there would be a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire and that he would be the new king because they were just certain that when he was involved in taking the lunch of a small little boy and five loaves and two fish and he began to multiply it. Man, they were ready to make him king that day. Nobody had ever had thrown a fish and chips day the way Jesus had. And so they're thinking, man, if we had this guy leading us as our king, the the barrel would never run dry. The meal would always be there. The oil would always be there to be produced. We'd have everything we need and we would have righteousness and justice. 
Their, their heart's desires are right, but the expectation in which they thought it would come about was entirely upside down. Because think about this. If you are governed by uh, an illegitimate force of power or the will to power and somebody's using a military fist and you rise up and do the same thing they've done with military tactics, with a violent overthrow, you've become the very same thing that they are in trying to pull them down. Jesus wasn't going to give in to that kind of tactic. He was going to move in from the inside out and from the upside down and literally turn the whole Roman Empire on its will to power upside down. He would not just do that as a political statement, but he would die in order to absorb death for every man. The Bible said he, in the book of Hebrews, he tasted death for every man. If Jesus has already tasted death for you, there's no reason for you to sit down at the table of death for eternity. And eat it because Jesus has already taken your portion. He's already died. It was one of the great Puritans that wrote a book called The Death of, uh, the death, of death in the Death of Christ. Death died. Because when he rose up, as we celebrate, we'll celebrate next week, it's the total end of the reign of death. Wow. They had expected a complete coup d'etat, an overthrow of the government. A, a, a bloody revolution of the state. Jesus is marching to the place called Skull Hill. And I don't think it's by any coincidence that he dies in a place called Skull Hill because literally that's where you and I fight most of our battles. It's, it's literally from, from our ears up. It was a motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, says we all need a checkup from the neck up because we're all a product of stinking thinking. And sometimes that stinking thinking is religiously based. It is driven by man-centeredness. And is only we're able to let that mess be nailed to the cross of Christ and that we can see through His suffering and His shame and His dying for us that in swallowing up death that we now have life. The charge that was leveled against Him was King of the Jews, which is so ridiculous. He never led a rebellion. He was not an insurrectionist. He was a lover and not a fighter. But he certainly was speaking against anyone who would fight in his or her own strength and certainly was speaking to political issues as well in the Roman government. When he finally gets nailed to the cross, every morbid element being fulfilled in prophecy here where it talks in Scripture about his hands and his feet literally being pierced and his side and, and, and the garments being gambled for as they throw dice. The actual original says they cast lots, which would be compared to our dice today. And so they're gambling for his garments. And, and, and I don't want to be crude in any kind of way or crass, but all of the representations that you see in pictures of Jesus on the cross or the carvings, the, the sculptures, all have him covered nicely with a loincloth. But in the Roman Empire, they didn't care about modesty. Let me just set the record straight. Jesus was completely humiliated in every kind of way. He hung totally naked on the cross. And we clean it up today. We, we, we cover the necessary, the, the parts that need to be covered with modesty. But Jesus, in His humanity had already laid down his divinity and came down and submitted himself and became a servant of servants, took upon the form of a servant and submitted to everything that we deal with, was all points tempted like as we are, the Bible says, yet without sin, submitted even unto death. And he did it in complete openness and transparency, naked before the world, total, utter humiliation. Don't miss this. 
When you read this in some of the other translations, the ESV, the King James, it talks about, about the third hour. He was crucified. He was nailed to the cross. Everyone say 9 o'clock in the morning. We're talking about six hours. And Max Lucado wrote a, wrote a great book. And I had, I had all of these great aspirations of digging the book out and rereading it this week. And I couldn't find it. Uh, it's in my library somewhere. And I've got books in num- numerous places. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you how, 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 the, how the books are all over the place. Max wrote a great, great book called Six Hours, One Friday. And nobody can write a story and can grip your heart when you're reading it and the words are off of a page the way Max Lucado can. He talked about everything that Jesus had endured in those six hours one Friday. So think about your clock at 9 o'clock in the morning all the way over to noon and then over to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. These are literally corresponding with what's called the morning and the evening sacrifice. The high priests are in the temple and they're offering what's called the morning sacrifice. Regularly and especially at Passover, we've got lambs that are being slain and being thrown onto the brazen altar out in the courtyard of the temple proper. We have high priests in the middle court, in the inner court. It's called the holy place. And they're throwing incense on the golden altar of incense. And the morning sacrifice was a sacrifice of praise. It was incense ascending before God. And so at the very same time that Jesus is being nailed to the cross, the priest in the middle of a religious system that's totally void of the presence and the power of God is offering up incense and God's receiving it, but they don't realize that the incense is going to be the scent of death of his son. He's nailed to the cross and there are three hours of him hanging up there and about the stroke of noon, the Bible says darkness begin to roll in and cover the whole region. So it was from the third hour to the ninth hour. We've got these six hours that happened one Good Friday. Darkness, and we see what takes place. My next point is darkness and the cry of the sin bearer. As this darkness rolls in, this is worse than a cloud cover. And this cannot be explained away scientifically by saying that it just happened to be a an eclipse, because Passover is always going to be, since the Jewish calendar is tied to a lunar calendar, it's always going to be at the time of a full moon. You can't have a full moon and have an eclipse. So it can't be explained away humanistically or by natural causes. The darkness that rolled in over the people was palpable. It was tangible. It was, a, it was a, an impenetrable kind of darkness that left a foreboding. It was gloomy. It, was, it had the sense of evil all around it. Because I want to tell you, I believe the hordes of hell were dancing, thinking that they had actually won in crucifying the Lord of glory. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says. Had they known, they would not have. Theologians say that those are actually leaders of the governments. But others, historians, theologians say that also applies to the whole leadership of the demonic realm. They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory had they known. See, the devil is different from God. He does, he's not omni-anything. He does not know everything. He has to gather his information by reconnaissance. And too many times, stupid ignorant, unwitting Christians open their mouth and give up classified information that shouldn't be shared. And there's an imp that's hanging out. There's a demonic influence that's watching. And too much of the time we're giving away information because we don't control and we let our tongues rattle outside of our mouths. 
Oh, I'm preaching real good. I know I am right now. I don't, whether, I don't even need an amen. Come on. But we give it away. We complain. We gossip. We, we fret. We whine. When I say we, let me just take it all away so nobody thinks I'm aiming at anybody. God knows my heart. I don't have anybody in my own mind. I, in those times when I, and, and thank God I've got a little bit of maturity on me that I don't do it to the degree that I used to do it. Am I perfect? No, no, no. But thank God. He who began a good work in me will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm growing. (coughs) The darkness is indescribable. Jesus begins to quote Psalm 22. It's the great messianic psalm which begins, Elohim, Elohim, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which literally could be translated, my family, my family. He's speaking to the Father. He's speaking to the Holy Spirit. He's saying to the Elohim, the Genesis chapter 1, those involved in the creation of the world, those who said, let us make man in our image. He's saying, where are you? What's going on? Why am I in this place of complete separation? The holy, blessed, righteous Son of God is in a place of complete separation from God because the Bible says, that Isaiah 59, that our, that our sin separates us. It breaks fellowship with God. But the Bible says His hand is not shortened that He cannot save. And the hand of the Lord is actually at busy work right now, hanging on the cross, doing what only He can do in order to create a, an open door and reconnect a path for us because of the brokenness of sin. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment where literally the sins of the whole world are poured down upon the back of the sin bearer. Jesus becomes the scapegoat. You hear that in your office sometimes when someone is necessarily fired because a project or a program didn't go well and some heads have got to roll and somebody's going to be the scapegoat. It was in the wilderness where the high priest would literally lay hands upon a goat. One would be sacrificed and the blood would be shed and it would be spilled. And another one, the the high priest would lay hands upon the goat and it would send it into the wilderness. And it was a picture of the imputation, imputing all of the penalty of our sins. And it's going into the wilderness to die. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed your sin from you. And it's put on the scapegoat. The scapegoat's the one who takes upon himself the sin. He becomes the sin bearer. In this moment, Jesus becomes the scapegoat for the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took my place. He died for me. He died as me so that I could live as Him. I could live and walk in newness of life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. In this moment, one of the most disgusting things takes place. Jesus has been offered a painkiller twice during this, but he was determined that he was going to be fully alive, fully awake, embracing, not just aware of the outrageous pain that he would endure, but he would be fully cognizant, not numbed. There was no, there was no epidural for the cross. There was no... There was no cocaine or Novocaine or anything that he was going to take. He, didn't, he refused the wine mixed with myrrh. And in that moment when he cries out in anguish and the darkness is all over the land, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Someone rushes and grabs a sponge, a common element used 
in the restrooms of the community. When I was in Israel, our tour guide, Ariel, who is a spirit-filled, he would be what we would call a completed Jew. He's a Messianic Jew. He believes Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel and of the whole world. Ariel is an amazing man of God, great teacher. And he talked about what really most people don't even have an understanding of. This sponge that was put up into Jesus' face that had gall. Someone says, one another translation says vinegar. It was a commonly used sponge in public restrooms that would be used by an attendant. Pardon me, I don't want to be crude, but it, it had actually been on the bottoms of some people. And so Jesus has thrust in his face the most disgusting, vile, a sponge that is filled with the off-scouring of humanity. Offal, the Bible word. We're talking about everything that depicts the lowest. It's, it's, it's scum. It is, it's refuse. And that's thrust into Jesus' face, into his mouth. And he's got the taste of the disgusting sin of humanity. And Jesus refuses. In that moment... God rips open the veil of separation. Jesus breathes his last breath. The veil in the temple, as shared by the Jewish historian Josephus in his book called The Works of Josephus, talk about how it took multiple men to hang this curtain that hung between the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place was the place where only the high priest once a year could penetrate the veil that God would literally take him through. He would be translated through that veil into the presence of God himself. There was no break in the veil. It was one whole piece. It was, it was a tapestry. It was a piece of embroidery. And, the, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that it was six inches thick. So we're talking about, you know, you, you think about rolling up a, 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 a really well-crafted Persian rug and you get something that, that would, be, would cover the room of about maybe 10 by 12 and that's about what it would be because these, this, this room was, the, holy, the most holy place was 10 by 10 by 10. So in order to cover it, it has to be 10 feet wide and 10 feet high. Roll up a very heavy oriental rug that's, that's just a couple of inches thick and it's going to take a number of men. Think about it being six inches thick and hanging on clasps on a bar. Think about how heavy this thing is. And the Bible says that it is ripped in two from top to bottom. And it's specific in the sense of telling us how it was. It wasn't from the bottom to, to the top signifying that it would have been a work of man. And there is no strong man strong enough. I don't care how many big New York City phone books a muscled up dude can rip in half. No one is strong enough to, to rip into a six-inch veil. And this was the beginning of the judgment of God on the temple that when he who now is the living temple was dying on the cross, God says it's going to be an end to this old system. Just one more mark. One more mark why I won't let myself get tied up in the, the cultish dispensationalism of the day in the attempt to totally rebuild an entirely different temple and even if we start new sacrifices again, that would be a complete affront to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's nonsense. Jesus cries out, it is finished. Screams it, groans it out. And in that moment, the veil is ripped from the top to the bottom, signifying that it was a work that only God could have done. And I close this message this morning with my last point. The most accurate response of that whole day.
is a man who looked up at the end of this event and he's a Roman guard. And he says with eyes of faith as he looks up, truly, this has to be the Son of God. And and I want to say to you as I close this message out about this amazing day 2,000 years ago that Jesus swallowed up death by dying himself. He, He, from the inside out and from the upside down, undid illegitimate power by submitting to a wrong claim and then rises up to take over power in a righteous kind of way. The man observed and he said, truly, this has to be the Son of God. And I just want to say this to you. It has nothing to do with assenting to the fact that, yeah, I believe that Jesus lived and died. You know what? So did George Washington. So did uh, Elvis Presley. Assenting to the fact that someone was real and was a historical figure doesn't mean a thing. As a matter of fact, the book of James says even the demons do that, but they at least tremble with it. The issue this morning is not whether you believe in Jesus. It's like a friend of mine who asked me about five years ago. He said, the real point of the gospel is not do you believe in Jesus, it's do you believe Jesus. Because you can believe in him all day long and you can dismiss every word, every claim, every demand on your life and mine. But if you believe him, That's the opening of a whole new door to a new way of life. Do you believe what he said about you? He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. And the wrath of God abides on him already. Jesus refused to be medicated. He refused to just, you know, take a pill to make him complacent and just smooth out the rough edges of a very difficult circumstance he was about to experience. He tasted of it head on. He grabbed hold of it. He got a bite of the Bible says he tasted death for every man. He drank full the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. There's no sense that anybody in this room or anyone on the planet would ever have to drink of that cup of the wrath of God. There's no sense why anybody would ever have to sit down and eat death at a banquet table for eternity because Jesus has already tasted death for you. The whole point is this, is can you have a righteous response in the very same kind of way that the Roman soldier did. This has to be the Son of God. Bow your hearts with me, please, this morning for a word of prayer.